reading from the New Testament is to finish the book of Galatians. We've been working through Galatians for about seven months. We are on chapter 6, and we are beginning in verse 11. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision Uh, avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the Reformation, you had the question of what justifies. Is it righteous deeds, or is it God's gift of faith? And the entire era was dominated by that question. Can we, by our righteous acts, contribute anything to justification? Do we in any way help God redeem us and... The biblical answer was no, and the Protestants stood up saying, no, God saves first to last, justification is totally by the gift of faith, good works avail nothing. That's true, and that distinction must always be maintained, and the book of Galatians is about that. It's in a historical context of the Judaizers and what they were doing, But the struggle was the same. The the Judaizers were saying, uh, adopt the, the, the law and its obedience, especially adopt the ceremonial law, and this will uh, justify you in God's eyes. And, and Luther latched on to Galatians. He called it his wife. It was the, the voice of the Reformation. But having said all of that, And having emphasized how important it is, there is a paradoxical other side to that coin. And that is, quite frankly, men believe what they do. Men don't necessarily believe what they say. Men don't even necessarily believe what they think. They may have certain opinions. They may have philosophical ideas that they have constructed in their minds that are ornate and intricate, but if you want to see what a man believes, you will see what a man believes in what he does. That is 
the, that is the telltale sign. That is the red flag. A man may say he believes something. He may say it to you in great earnestness. He may be very convincing. But what do men really believe? It comes out in their actions. It's what they do. Paul is emphasizing this as the, the book comes to a close. We have seen him emphasize the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is moving among the church. He, he began that theme in chapter 3. By the time you get to chapter 5, the Spirit is, is producing the fruits in, in God's people. Uh, now Paul looks at the very pragmatic question how do we know that we truly believe? And he points to the Judaizers and says, stop listening to what they're saying, look at what they're doing. Because what they are saying is God desires righteous acts from his people, and they're absolutely right. Paul has agreed to that through the last several chapters. God desires Righteous deeds to spring from his people. The Judaizers aren't wrong, and they are very winsomely, very convincingly saying you need to embrace our focus on God's law because there you will find the righteous deeds that God wants people to do. And again, they're not wrong. A good deed before the Lord is a deed that matches the law of God. God's law is not an evil thing. It never was. Jesus Christ did not come to save us from an evil law sent from God. God's law, according to Paul, is holy, righteous, and good. And the Judaizers, at first glance, would sound like prophets. Do God's law. Well, sure. Let's look at those who are circumcised, says Paul. In using that term, he's not just talking about the Judaizers, he's talking about those who have rejected the Lord Christ and still want to be called Jews, want to be called Israelites. Do they actually keep the law? They speak up for it. They they hold it in high regard verbally. But let's look at their lives. When you look at them, are they really walking according to God's law, holding it as the benchmark? Paul says, no, they are not. And he says it in such a way that the reader, in in following what he's saying, looks up from the text and he looks at the Judaizers and he goes, yep, Paul's right. They're not actually walking according to the law because they're not. A focus on works righteousness will not actually produce a life of righteousness. It won't. It will produce a life of hypocrisy. And all Paul has to do is shine the spotlight on them and say, take a look. Do you see the righteousness that the law commends here? The answer is no. They talk righteousness. But what is really inside? You can see it by what they do. And if you believe in justification by faith, and if you believe in the Holy Spirit being given to you by faith, if you believe that it's God in you to will and to work according to his good purpose, uh, 
you're actually going to do what that would suggest. You believe what you do. Belief actually comes with conviction. It comes with a, a sense of absolute oughtness that comes from the hand of God and it produces men who will take a stand for what is right when that's not popular, when that's hard, when that really is the path of most resistance. The first verse of our passage says, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. I've introduced this verse before, talking about Paul's thorn in his flesh. It's likely he can't see well. There's, there's biblical evidence to suggest that's his problem. Not conclusive, but it's pretty strong. He writes as he signs the, the letter with very large letters, probably because he can't see. But there's a, a, a second emphasis in this. Paul has written a letter standing against the popular opinion in the Galatian churches. The Judaizers have had effect. They have been convincing. Most men in those churches are at least being troubled by their, by their teaching. Many have embraced them. Uh, men are not necessarily going to like Paul having read this letter. And Paul says, see how big I've written. This is the truth. It's the truth if you like it. It's the truth if you don't. I'm not going to back down. I'm going to make it big. I'm going to make it bold. I'm going to sign my name as large as possible because as a man of God-given faith, I'm a man of conviction. You can hate me for my belief. You can love me for my belief. I don't really care. God has given me this sense of oughtness. God has shown me the truth. And I'm backing down. I'm going to stand for this because real Christian faith produces actual conviction. And how can it not? Because what does the gift of God's true faith do but so radically transform you spiritually, so internally transform you, that Paul can say in verse 14 that by the cross of Christ I have died to the world and I have come to life to God. That is not just poetic. That is not just a pretty picture and it's not even just covenantal standing, although it is. When Paul uses language like this, he's talking about the fact that we are now alive to God in the covenant, where we have been dead to him outside of the covenant. It is covenantal language, but it's also transformative language. I am really dead to the world. I am really alive to God. I have been resurrected as much realistically as when at the end of time God will rise me up physically again. I have been raised to God, but I have died to the world. I no longer live as part of it, 
I am truly an outsider. I am like the walking dead. The, the last month, I've been doing a lot of reading from evangelicals from the 1800s. Uh, that's, that's been in several of the books that I've, I've been led to read. And while a, a number of these people are very admirable, some of them are not, but while many of them are, there was a, a theme running through everything that they wrote that I began to really kind of be disturbed by, and that was if you were an evangelical in the 1800s, one of the assumed truths that you put forward to justify your Christian religion was that the Christian religion makes men good citizens, good uh, societal members, Christianity civilizes you. And it it makes you more civic-minded. And it makes you fit into the world. That was an assumption on their part. Underlying that assumption was that society and church were to mingle together. So that the church is a noble uh, function of society. The, the public school and the church, I know they didn't have public schools in those days, but uh, all these institutions were all part of society, and Christianity made you fit into society better. That was just their assumption, and it was part of their argument to defend the Christian faith. I don't think Paul would have understood that. I think Paul would have looked at them and said, you're the diaspora. When James, the brother of Jesus, in the first verse of his epistle, calls you the diaspora, when in the first couple verses of 1 Peter, the apostle Peter calls you the diaspora, those who are scattered through the world and are not citizens of the world, those who are waiting to be gathered to their kingdom, when my fellow writers of the scripture said, this world is not your home, you're only passing through, what part did you miss? You are not alive to the world. You are dead to the world. This is not your home. If the Christian faith makes you fit in better to the world, seriously begin to reevaluate what you're doing. Because the Christian faith makes you dead to the world. It deadens your desires to it. It deadens your sense of belonging here. It also just deadens your ability to really fit in. Paul says, I'm dead to the world through the cross of Christ. I have been radically transformed. I am not who I was. In in some senses, I've been brought to life. In some senses, I have been brought to death. And uh, how can I not be a man of conviction? How can I not stand up for the truth? The truth is now where I live. How can I not but live there? I am dead to the world. I am alive to God. And I am a boastful fellow. There is a, uh, a teaching among Christians that you should never boast. And it's generally well, well-minded because boasting is generally seen as a sin in Scripture. But Scripture does not present boasting in a completely sinful light. 
If you boast in yourself, if you boast in your possessions, if you boast in your mental abilities, uh, you're a prideful person and the scripture says God opposes you, that's a bad place to be. But don't miss that the Apostle of Christ has just used the concept of boasting in a positive way. He has said, I will boast, I will speak highly, I will rejoice in something, I will celebrate something, I will declare the wonders of something, but it's the cross of Christ. I will boast. I will fill this room with boasting. I will rejoice and dance before the Lord with all vehemence. But what I will boast in, what I will glory in, what I will triumph in is the cross. As you know, I am a, uh, an EKU professor. I, I teach world religions. I, I have come to know the world's religions pretty good. You have to teach them. And I know that all the world's religions have to deal with the question of how can imperfect men reach the holy other, which is uniformly seen as perfect. Islam has an answer for that. Modern Judaism has an answer for that. Buddhism has an answer for that. None of their answers is like the cross. All of their answers are fairly worldly intuitive. But the cross is the holy other, the, the, the perfect, the righteous, the good, the all-knowing, the ever-living, coming down into our world, taking on our flesh, living a perfect life for us, substituting that righteousness for us, and taking our divine punishment to himself, the world's religions have nothing like that at all. It is a wonder. It is a majesty. It is something that should stop you in your tracks, and you should shake when you realize God, who made death a curse, was willing to take his own curse and eternal punishment because he loved his elect people. He fired the gun and stepped in front of his own bullet. No oracle at Delphi ever predicted that. No Buddhist ever came to the enlightenment of that. No Hindu ever saw any Hindu god reach to him like that. But God in Jesus Christ was willing to suffer for us, to come to us, to buy us. I will boast in that, says the Apostle. I will rejoice in that. That is the only thing really worth boasting in. Like all things, boasting has a place. It is boasting in the cross. If you have actual Christian faith, if it's God's gift to you, one thing you can absolutely take to the bank is that your life will be less easy. I've already emphasized that being dead to the world, you're not going to fit in, but 
That is a theme that Paul runs all through this chapter. Uh, In verse 17, Paul says, From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Among Romanists, there grew up a superstition that a supernatural event happened to very holy people. They would develop on their body what they called the stigmata. Uh, their hands would bleed, their feet would bleed, their, the, the, their side would bleed, and it was God showing through them the wounds of Christ, and it was drawn directly from this verse. They said, Paul is saying, uh, I'm such a holy man that I have the stigmata, the very wounds of Christ are coming out, and uh, Romanists have gloried in this very strange phenomena for centuries. Paul's not really saying that. And there's no reason to believe he's saying that. When Paul says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus, he's saying the man Christ Jesus got beat to a bloody pulp in this world for our redemption, but also because the world absolutely hated him because he was holy, he was righteous, and he was good. And the world has done a similar thing to me. I have my scars, I have my wounds, specifically because I am reconciled to God and I am at peace with God. Paul is talking very realistically. And he is saying, if God loves you, the world will hate you, and it will beat scars into you. Those scars might be mental, They might be emotional, but quite frankly, they may be physical. Paul doesn't go into it here, but in other parts of the the, the epistles that he, he writes, Paul describes the bona fides that he has. He has stood up by conviction that faith has produced, and he suffered beatdowns. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 5. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. What can you make of that passage? But Paul said, 
I've served the Lord, and what comes with it is constantly being oppressed in many ways. And just so the Corinthians didn't miss what he was really talking about, in chapter 12 of that book, beginning at verse 22, we read this. Chapter 11, that's right, that's why I'm confused. Talking again about false teachers, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often, From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Beside the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches, who is weak and I am not weak, who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The evangelical church assures you, and they are not wrong. But it's wonderful from God's point of view. God glorifies himself in his servants, and in his last letter to Timothy, Paul says, everyone who wants to walk godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I mean, that's a quote. That, that's what he says. When Paul talks about what's happened to himself, he's not saying, now I'm an apostle of Christ, I'm in a special category, uh, I've taken the bullets, you're not going to have that. Paul puts forward what is done to him as what the world will do. He bears in his body the marks of Christ just like every follower of Christ will. Does the Lord love you and have a wonderful plan for your life? Absolutely. But if that is true, the world will hate you and have a terrible plan for your life, and uh, the intermixing of these things will spill out your life. God will be glorified. God will give you satisfaction beyond measure. God will make your life meaningful. God will glorify himself. But if you get through life without scars probably don't belong to the one who has scars in his hands and feet and a wound in his side. We are, after all, the church militant. As we come to the end of Galatians, there are two verses in this small passage that 
call for special attention. One is verse 15. It sounds very familiar to us because it should be. There's another verse fairly close to this that says almost the same thing. Verse 15 says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. When we heard that, we ought to have thought about what Paul has said just one chapter back. He's almost said exactly those words. In chapter 5 and verse 6 he says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. So he introduces the circumcision idea in the same words, but in chapter 5 he gave us an overview of what the Christian life looks like. God gives you faith. Faith cannot but love God. If someone has faith in God, they love God. And that kind of God-given love cannot but lead you to want to obey God. The earliest of churches used it as their uh, John 3.16. This was what they used when they wanted to summarize the Christian life in a nutshell. But now Paul says almost the same thing, but where you have faith working through love, Paul inserts, this is a new creation. He is wanting you to have no illusions, but what we are talking about, a supernatural transformation. Who has faith? Someone who is a new creation. Who loves God? Someone who is a new creation. Who uh, does the works of God? A new creation. I am amazed at the number of people who would call themselves Christians but are honestly clueless about the concept of conversion. Conversion is doing right things, walking the right way, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. In scripture, conversion has all those elements, well not the bootstrap thing, but uh, it comes out of God recreating you. It comes out of God bringing you to life. That is the essence of our nature before him. We are covenantally linked to him. He has taken us as his people. But it is no outer covenant. It is an inner covenant. A covenant that reaches to your very heart and transforms you from life to death. This is what matters. And this is what will produce the works of God. And then finally, verse 16, the New King James reads, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. What does that verse mean? Well, if it's taken in a vacuum and we only look at it in the way it works linguistically, uh, it could mean that God has just that, that, that God through Paul, the, the Holy Spirit working through Paul, has just emphasized that God has two people. He has those who walk by faith. Oh, and there's also the Israel of God. It's Israel. It's of God. Uh, there's those of us who work, walk by faith. We are the Church of God. God has two wives. The Israel of God, the Church of God, 
And as Paul ends the letter, he's basically saying, God bless them both. The dispensationalists take that interpretation of the verse and they drive it to China. Could it mean that? Well, linguistically, in a vacuum, that's one of the options of what the verse means. It could mean that just as the words fall out. That would be a very, very odd thing for Paul to mean, though. Because all the way through this letter, Paul has not spoken highly of those who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and have embraced Jewish traditions. He's actually spoken very negatively about them. And as we look at certain other passages, um, could Paul mean that having wrote these verses? Going to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, for instance. Paul is talking about Jews, and beginning at verse uh, 14, he, re- he says this, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. They do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Now, the New King James uses the term Judean, but that's not in the original, it's Jew. And Paul says, now, they hate all men, they're against God, They don't want other people to be saved. And God's wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Oh, but peace to them. I don't think Paul would have identified the Israel of God as those people. In fact, when, again, the Spirit speaking through through the Apostle, he talks about who is a real Jew Uh, This is what he has to say in chapter 2 of Romans, beginning with verse 25. Circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is from, not from men, but from God. So the apostle right there said, uh, those who are in enmity with God, even though they are called Jews, they aren't Jews. But he introduces a category of people who are Jews. They are the ones who are circumcised in heart. This has happened by the Spirit, and God is getting praised by the acts of the Spirit in them. And that... that 
correlates with chapter 5 and chapter 3 of Galatians. We are the people of the Spirit. We who are not Jews. Oh, but peace be upon the Jews. When Paul returns to this theme in Romans, in chapter 11, uh, beginning at verse 16, we read this. I say then, have they... I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify the ministry, my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them. So they need saving. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, so they're broken off, And you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in, so you're actually in, among them, and with them become partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So Paul talks about those who are called Jews, and he says they've been broken off. They need to be saved. God will one day bring about a great gathering of them, but they are not in now. They are broken from the root. They don't attach to it. Oh, but peace be to Israel. It begins to look very, very, very unlikely. That's what he means. And linguistically, that's not our only option. Uh, It's definitely not our only option for translating. Uh, The various translations translate this verse differently Uh, let's take the New International Version it translates verse 16 this way peace and mercy to all who follow this rule even to the Israel of God the uh, Revised Standard Version in 16 peace and mercy be upon all who walk by this rule upon the Israel of God. Is that linguistically possible to the original Greek? The answer is yes. If you go back and look at the verse, um, either meaning could be drawn in a vacuum. But this translation that you see in these other translations certainly makes much more sense. Who is the Israel of God? It is those whom God has given faith in Jesus Christ. You see, Christianity is not a merely 2,000-year-old religion. Christianity is the fulfillment of everything God has been promising since the fall in the garden. Christianity is not something different than what you read in the Old Testament. Christianity is what God has been doing, Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. Who is the Israel of God? Who truly are the people God 
contends with and for, because that's what the word Israel means. It's those who belong to God in Jesus Christ. Those who call themselves Jewish, but reject David their king. Those who call themselves Jewish, but hold on to works righteousness. Are they actually the Israel of God? The answer is no. You are the Israel of God. So, Mazel Tov. You belong to God. You are his covenant people. You are the continuation of everything God has been doing. And if you look at the New Testament, there is nothing in the New Testament that arises by itself. Every scrap of every aspect of our Christian religion literally draws out of the Old Testament. What is the Lord's Supper? It's Jesus Christ taking the elements of Passover and slightly changing the Passover celebration. It's the fulfillment of Passover. What is the Church of Christ? It is the temple of the living God. It is foreshadowed by the sticks and bricks, but the real temple of God has always been the people of God with the Holy Spirit in them. Where did baptism come from? Well, in Colossians chapter 2, we're told that baptism is circumcision. It's the final form of the covenant of entry, and that's how baptism works. You can't find anything in the New Testament that doesn't have this Old Testament root because it's all one in the same religion. Jesus Christ is the King of Israel. Jesus Christ is the promised Son of David. Jesus Christ is the branch of our righteousness. Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent's head. So when Paul says, peace be upon those who follow this rule, he's saying, peace be upon the real Israel of God. If you have faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else, if you cling to him and his righteousness, his death and his resurrection alone, if that is your only hope, you are Israel.